I have Vijesh here as a co-host. He's agreed to or offered to um, to make sure that this gets recorded just because we had uh, a lot of issues with the, the Twitter native recording in the past. Uh, so thank you, Vijesh. And uh, actually just wanted to, to say as well, we had a really interesting conversation just about um, I, I didn't realize um, before we had had the conversation and, and connected that you were doing you know quite a bit of content for the finance space and and um, we talked a little bit about almost making like automated market reports for realtors um, as a uh, you know like a monthly subscription model kind of thing and uh, really really interesting conversation so hopefully um, you know I think next week we want to try and chat about the interest rate decision but but in the future um, it would be really cool to do something you know because I noticed we do have a lot of realtors on here and then a lot of end users as well just discussions on technology and and how realtors can could leverage technology or, or are failing to we can talk about the archaic nature of uh, real estate in, in Canada and uh, and the differences between here in the US um, anyway uh, I do want to get started so um, Jordan Peter do you guys want to just take a minute to introduce yourself for anybody who um, who doesn't know you I mean I think we're all relatively uh, outspoken here on Twitter um, Dan uh, Demelis, do you want me to add you as a as a speaker just because I know you've been doing a lot of pre-con product uh, for some of your investor clients since you started and uh, you've recently become a house influencer by sharing all of the uh, insane prices on uh, I think I like a professional professional Zolo or a house Sigma scroller anyway I'll send you a request uh, Daniel DeMellis Jordan if you want to do a quick intro yeah sure I've uh, been selling pre-construction nine ten years now uh, my own precondo.ca. We're one of the largest websites in the space. Do a few hundred units a year, um, and that's that's about it. I also do a lot of YouTube content, that kind of good stuff. Yeah, yeah, really active on YouTube, um, and some sweet videos. If you guys ever get the chance to check it out, um, I like that you take a you know a, a more finance heavy uh, approach to the analysis of it. Um, you know, and and uh, really good critical and honest analysis so that's why i wanted to to chat with you and get your perspective on what the hell is going on with the condo market in toronto why we're seeing uh you know 50 percent disparity in resale versus um pre-con pricing right now um peter do you want to do a quick uh quick intro as well um nasma i see we have you here and then i'll add in uh, to here as well uh, yeah i'll keep it quick uh just a, a real out of the gta focusing predominantly in uh, York region, some areas of Durham and uh, Scarborough. Um, interested in, uh, obviously, the stats and, and the market and where we're heading and, and macro as well, too. So I'll hand it off to Nasma. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, welcome back. Yeah, thank you. I actually am selling a condo tonight. And so I'm right in the middle of it, okay? And I have, like, four offers. So I'm in the middle of, like, round one and round two. So I might, like, come in and out. But, uh, yeah. What do I have to say? The intro? You can just live <laughs> stream your bidding war. That's fine. Uh, yes, that would be so good. It's so intense right now. You know why? It's tenanted. And uh, we listed with no, like, we don't, we weren't, not what we weren't expecting. I had a feeling this was going to happen, but we didn't list it low for multiple offers because it's tenanted. We couldn't stage. We didn't have good photos. And so we listed at the right price, like the market price, right? Like 650 just come and get it, right? 
but uh, day two, of course, uh, we get like everybody wants to offer. So now we have above asking, you know, despite that we weren't listed at five ninety nine with an offer date. But right. yeah. Yeah, I mean, the whole, I think the market's just become irrational at this point, where you can't tell if something's underpriced or not. I mean, we we've always made an attempt to to market price stuff, and and still seems to you know if you're if you priced it two weeks before you're listing it, you're, there's a you know there's a ten percent uh, gap there in in the past yeah. couple of weeks. So, um, I know uh, Nazma, you had a, quite a few questions, um, or this sort of idea came from from um, you at the end of the first week. Um, is there any specific questions yeah. you have for Jordan about? Um, pre-con or do you want me to kind of just start going through the the submitted questions on the thread yeah you know i'll just say this like i i uh i've bought pre-con and i've sold pre-con and i do assignments and everything and and before 2000 i mean 2017 and before i used to be all in and i used to kind of like you know I, i i was happy to sell it to clients but now anytime i don't push it i don't push pre-con anymore and if a client comes to me and says they're interested, I'm happy to give them information, but I, I have a million disclaimers, right? And I just feel that I, I just don't see the benefit of pre-con in terms of pricing just because I, I don't get why builders are, I mean, maybe I get it, but it's 30% more than resale. I get why sometimes people don't want to pay a mortgage for five years or they don't want a tenant for five years, but there's just so much uncertainty and I've seen too many people lose money because of pre-con. So, yeah, right. Jordan, what do you tell people? Uh, Nasma, just for clarity, when you say you've seen people lose money because of pre-con, do you mean they bought and assigned below what they paid? Or do you mean they just left money on the table because they could have bought resale 10, 20, 30% cheaper? Because they're assigning and they're losing money. Or it's set to close and it's barely market uh, market uh, value, like or whatever they paid. And the other thing also is that the problem that we forget about pre-con, 90% of the building is sold to investors. And what happens when it's occupied is that now you have a building full of rentals on MLS and you're competing with every other 90% investor to get it rented and it's a race to the bottom. So yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, sure. I it, like, look on the investor point, it does depend obviously heavily on building. You get something in the church street corridor where your average unit size is 550, 600 square feet. Of course, it's going to primarily be investors, but you also get your boutiques and stuff where it's 80% end users, 70% end users. But it's important to remember, I think like for a lot of people that, Look, at the end of the day, investors purchasing pre-construction, that's how we get new housing supply financed in the GTA because the developers have to so look, they, they have to hit their 20% profit margin to get construction financing and they have to sell quick enough to get their construction financing that their pro forma still works and construction costs didn't inflate too much in the interim and get the shovel in the ground, right? So investors front load the, the financing of construction or, or of new housing supply, you could say. And then obviously as a building matures, you know, over time, those investors offload those units and the building starts to, you know, level out as a more end user driven building. Um, and there are some like, look, there are some high rises too that are mostly end users. Like I did 45 or 50, maybe 60. I have, I have no idea. A lot of deals at this building in Humber Bay where 80% of my clients happen to be um, happen to be end users. So it does sometimes happen, happen that way. And, you know, like in the last year, we sold a couple hundred, couple hundred units last year. And I would say 
like I would say 50, 60% were investment or buying for their kids, but the other 50% or, or 40% were end users, either first time buyers or upsizers and downsizers. Um, now on the note of, look, like the reality is pre-construction is more expensive than resale. Obviously it's always been that way, but in the last few years, the gap has really widened, right? So right now, um, at a lot of launches, you'll see, you know, 20, 30% above comparable resale. Now, some people like to tweet that it's, you know, like 45, 50% above resale because it's really easy to take a new launch. Like, like let's just take one example. So Cielo launched last year, right? At Bloor and Spadina, it was 1,900, 2,000 a foot for the, for the one beds without parking. And it probably caught the most heat of the year in terms of pricing, at least on Twitter it did. And it's easy to look at a neighborhood average on condos SCA or whatever and say, okay, condos in the annex average, $1,200 a foot. So this is $800 a foot priced forward from resale. But the truth is, like, that's not an apples to apples comparison um, because you're, you're talking about 40, 50-year-old buildings. Uh, it's rolling in absolutely ev- – the crappy buildings, it's rolling in everything, right? So it's important when you're when, – as, like, as someone purchasing pre-construction to look at a fair comparable. And I would say like a fair comparable, similar buyers, people who want to be close to U of T on transit. You've got two of them that are that are fair to compare Cielo to. One is U Condos by Pemberton at 1080 Bay. It's four or five years old now, but it's similar. Um, and you've got units there recently selling, you know, 1550 a foot, one bedrooms without parking. You've also got Theory Condos, which just completed at College and Bay. And you've got a 570 square foot unit that just sold there. Two of them sold one in Dens without parking for 960k, and the other one was 950k. So that's about roughly like 1,700 a foot resale. Those are apples to apples comparison. And I can make the argument that Cielo is a better location with better finishes than both of those two other options. But even putting that aside, you know, okay, it's a 250 per foot premium on Cielo. So not accounting for what I think is a better location or any of the rest. That's a 15, 20 percent markup, and that's that's about what you see across most launches of course you can look at like some some 905 like you can look at like some condos that launched in, in square one where one bedrooms are 13 1350 a foot and say okay that's genuinely you know 35 40 percent more than resale but with a lot of the stuff we're seeing launching in toronto it's it's like a 20 25 percent premium but there's also the instances where or, or even like 33 Yorkville, right? The Pemberton, right? So you have 490 square foot, one bedroom at launch. I think it launched at 960 or 965, uh, if I recall correctly. So 2000 bucks a foot. One Yorkville is a fair comparison to that building. You wouldn't want to compare to the average of, of Yorkville because, again, you're rolling in all these old buildings, right? And we know new buildings tend to trade higher and all that good stuff. So when you, roll, when you look at apples to apples, you go, okay, well, one Yorkville trades their one bedrooms 14, 1450 a foot. So that's a 25%, 30% premium on that build, right? But every once in a while, there are really good launches. Um, Westerly 2, for example, last year, launched right on the Islington subway station, 1000 bucks a foot, 1000, uh, 1025 to 1050 a foot for a one bedroom. You have resale units at Islington Terrace, right across, right at the same intersection by the same developer, by Tridel, that are selling mid-900s a foot. Uh, Kip District has units selling mid-900s a foot. So $100 a foot premium there, 10%. In that case, like, it obviously is a lot easier to swallow a 10% premium. And that's why, I mean, there was such huge demand for Westerly too. Not that the- When would that close by comparison? Like, is it time? Right, okay. 
Yeah. So that's another thing to keep in mind. Like people are, you know, time value might like people are pricing and expectations. So it, at the end of the day, when you're buying pre-construction, it's a hundred percent, hundred percent speculative. I know we've got a lot of finance guys in here who would probably love to bust out the old, uh, if it doesn't yield cash flow, positive cash flow, it's not an investment. It's, it's, spec, it's a speculation. I, I, I mean, I could argue about definition all day, but I tend to agree with that. But the truth is, you buy a resale condo in Toronto, say you save 10, 20% over a pre-construction, you're speculating on that too, because that thing's not yielding positive cash flow either. So it's just the only thing that changes is the degree of speculation. And at the end of the day, if you're buying, pre-con- if you're buying uh, pre-construction or resale condo in Toronto, I have to imagine you're looking long-term with the exception of the people who think that they're going to get rich on assignments, which is of course bullshit. But for most of us, we're looking long-term. We're either bullish on Toronto real estate long-term or we're not. And if we're not, we're not buying because transaction fees are just too high to get in and out of real estate constantly. Right? So the the only thing that changes is, are you willing to swallow that 10, 15% premium? Um, And you know, all the time clients come to me and I always disclose, I always show them what comps are selling for at, at, you know, apples to apples, comparable buildings. And I mean, I'm like, I'm not a diehard pre-construction guy. Um, Truth is last year I, took a bunch of my pre-construction clients and, and sold them resale instead. It's a case by case. Some people only have 15% down. They're not ready to close on it. They can't get the mortgage, whatever. Whatever the case is, pre-construction is right for them. It allows them to, to leverage in the real estate market, um, but not close on the unit today. And maybe that's right for them. But for others, say you have the 20% plus land transfer and you can get the mortgage today, then absolutely you fast forward 10 years, who made more money? In most cases, the person bought pre-construction at a 10-20% or the resale purchaser who bought it at a 10-20% discount or pre-con, they're going to have done better. But the longer you get away from acquisition acquisition date, the, the narrower the advantage of resale becomes. And at the end of the day, like most condos, I know, you know, everything we market as pre-construction brokers in, in Toronto these days is luxury. But I mean, we all know, at least in this uh, group here, <laughs> It's all commodity product. Like ninety-five out of a hundred launches is just commodity product. It's the same fit and finish level. It's, you know, there's only so many Richard Wengels in Toronto. Um, and in the case of commodity product, we know like 10, 15 years down down the road, like your condos, it's going to lag the appreciation of the newer buildings slightly. Um, provided the building's well managed, it's not going to stop appreciating. Provided you don't have any like building deficiencies and lawsuits or issues with your status certificate that that mean that you can't finance. Like, provided you're not 36 Lisgar, you're going to you're going to continue to do well. But I, I think like it's important to remember that sometimes pre-construction just is the better play on a case by case basis. It just depends on what the client's situation is. Um, you know, maybe you're buying for kids and your, your kids and they're not going to be ready to move in in 10 years and you don't want a tenant today and you know buying pre-con gives you five six years until completion and then you only have to tenant it for three or four years before you get like whatever the case is there is um you know there's there's um buying pre-construction you just have to be aware that you are going to pay more than resale in most cases but there are exceptions to that too like last year i sold a one and den with a partial lake view at one young i sold a couple of them to clients at 1360 a foot at the exa- in the same month, there were units at Harbor Plaza in 10 York selling for over 1440 a foot. So you were buying in one young, the newest 95-story hotel res mix, you know, path connection, right in the same neighborhood as Harbor Plaza in 10 York, and you were actually paying less for it. You know, that's it's not like a ready. Project? Yeah, pinnacle. I mean, I mean, I, that's a 
look, I'm cherry picking here. Pinnacle usually prices pretty aggressively, but you get the idea. Like sometimes you can pick off pre-construction at resale market and sometimes even below, but that's only when it's lingering inventory or later releases. And I tell clients this all the time, like don't focus too much on the shiny new launch in the neighborhood because you can, in, in most cases, there's going to be a project that launched a year or two ago around the corner that either held back inventory to release later or had good units that they didn't sell on launch. And those units are going to be way cheaper than the new launch uh, almost every time. The, the question is just if that inventory is available or if they sold all the good inventory. Um, but often you can find really good deals just by looking at older launches. Right. Um, I want to I want to actually use that to segue to the 905 versus 416 discussion. But before we do that, uh, Tahir's had his hand up for a while. So I just want to see, um, Tahir, did you have a question for Jordan? Yes, yeah, so I I just kind of wanted to ask Jordan maybe some questions about like pre-construction going into the future. Um, so I'm, I'm just assuming um, these people are buying these from the builders, right? Correct. Okay. Um, so like I, I was actually very interested in this topic. So I, I went and I ran a linear regression um, just on how, let's say, you know, the Bank of Canada does go about raising rates. Um, but I found for every one percentage point or 100 bips uh, increase um, to the mortgage rate, um, that's associated um, roughly with a 4% decrease in, in new starts. Um, so do you think that that would end up being maybe, a let's say, minus the supply chain issues, would that end up being a cap maybe on, on, um, on pre-con going, going forward? I, yeah, I would imagine. I, I mean, it is one of the questions of like, okay, does that increase in rate change investor sentiment? And as a result, is there less appetite to pay 20% above resale market on, on, on these assets? And then, you know, less developers launch because they're in a rush to hit that 75% target. So if there's less appetite for those units, then they can't get the financing or they can't get the shovel in the ground quick enough. Um, I think like, like construction costs are up, what, 20, 25% on high rise. You have inclusionary zoning now coming, which is, I mean, uh, Candorel did an interesting study on 908 St. Clair, which they just launched. And the question that was posed to them was, okay, if you had, they've had that land for a while and zoned previously, but if you, if you zoned it today with the new inclusionary zoning, you had to include affordable housing, what would the launch prices look like? Uh, they said it would be 75 bucks a minimum 75 bucks a foot more to to uh the purchasers of saleable units so that kind of thing like it just keeps widening the pre-construction price gap and i think you see a couple rate hikes and maybe investor sentiment maybe there's less investors looking to pick off pre-construction units then yeah i mean at the end of the day developers just won't launch the product so you'll see them sit on the land a little bit longer until sentiment shifts uh, until that appetite's back i would imagine yeah, I, I think one of the one of the ways that I could contextualize that a little bit for you as well to hear is is that um, you know it's already so oversubscribed the the way that the projects are in and I and I really appreciate you actually taking like a you know a very neutral look at this and, and asking questions you know that are because realtors all of us especially with the product that we like we tend to be bullish on it um, but you know real estate in Toronto and in the GTA. Even with ignoring what's happening in the in the resale market for suburban product, it's a crowded trade, right? And that's what we heard from Abe last week. Uh, it's just so oversubscribed, and and so if you think about what Jordan sells, you know they're basically options contracts on on condominiums, their condominium futures, let's say. And so 
there's almost like an you can look at all of these closings as let's call it an options chain right there's there's essentially transactions that need to close out at new values that are going to create that and, and then you look at that at the same time and you have a limited supply chain right you have a supply chain where the labor market is extremely tight costs are still accelerating if the government does anything on the on the fiscal policy side to try and um, add housing to the market, if anything, that's going to be inflationary because they're going to introduce a five hundred dollar uh, per square foot build uh, bid at you know whereas the market's paying and, and actually that's that's a that's probably a poor number but they introduce an escalated per square foot build cost bid if they were a buyer in the market for labor or for construction. So I, the way I look at it is like yeah there there are there are risks I think associated with, with the structure um, and, and, and in the macro sense as well, but because financing the way that the financing for pre-construction product product works, basically Canada guarantee ensures deposits like similar to the, the Terry system and is allowed once they've insured a certain amount of deposits are actually allowed to use those deposits as collateral to get construction financing for a project. It's something that a lot of probably end user purchasers don't really understand. Um, so basically, the builder is actually levering up your deposit cash and putting it on top of, you know, some equity that they've put in or, or earned into the land. And then they use that to go and apply for construction financing. Um, and that actually, it, it makes it easier to segue a little bit to back to the discussion about 905 versus 416 pre-con projects, because one of the examples, and, and Jordan, when you're talking about, um, you know, p- certain developers who like to come out with really shocking releases. I, I think, I, I don't remember if it was Transit City, one of the phases of Transit City where, um, uh, was it Center Court there? Yeah, I think, I mean, they're they're pretty bold in their marketing anyway, but, you know, they released a project that sold out in, in, in minutes and, and, and it was really just to do exactly what I just mentioned. It It was there to get enough deposits and financing was simple so they could move on to the next phase. I believe I sort of, that's, that's kind of rumblings that I got from that. Um, and that was a project where they, they would have priced them perhaps even below what the resale market was doing. And in a, in a relatively soft resale market, I think that was probably late, late 2017 or early 2018. I can't, can't remember the launch exactly, but, um, I guess if, if we can use that as an example, Transit City being in the Bonner Metropolitan Center, um, and then maybe trying to get Peter involved in this as, as well, what are what are you seeing, Jordan, in, in regards to demand for pre-construction projects in the GTA? You know, one of the biggest themes that we've had over the last two years is the urban exodus, right? And people, and it's and seeing January price increases in Newmarket, Aurora, Durham, et cetera. You know, I mean, it looks like every time the Ontario government decides to do a lockdown, people just get pissed off and start impulsively YOLOing on, on uh, detached homes in the GTA or now semis and, and townhouses in, in the GTA. Um, is, is the condo market reflecting the same thing? Is there similar almost excess demand or, or shifts in demand patterns going towards pre-construction projects in the 905 rather than the, than the 416, you know, especially Hamilton, Burlington, et cetera, uh, Barrie being another good example. Uh, definitely. I mean, like, like from a, I can speak to both the like search trends and also just uh, buyer behavior because like, so our site just for context, we're like the only two pre-construction websites in Canada that generate more traffic than us is like Buzz Buzz Home and and Condo Now, um, and um, 
the the search traffic for Hamilton and Barry pre-construction specifically is I like a, it's almost it's almost larger than downtown search traffic. It's it's absurd. I've never seen anything like it. Um, and I mean, th- there's been some projects that have launched in in like Burlington, for example, had Beausoleil. I didn't participate because I knew it was going to be crazy. Um, I see Emmett's in the call here, so if he wanted to speak, he, can, he probably said I can. But I believe they had something like two, three thousand words. Um, so oversubscribed, like 10 to one. Right. Um, and there are, there's tons of examples like that, but I also, I think, you know, when you talk about like construction financing and, and, um, uh, that, that sort of thing, like a lot of people look at these prices, these developers put out and go, I mean, these guys are, these guys are so greedy. It's so, so much more expensive than resale, but it's like, it, pre-construction isn't priced based on the resale market. Like the way I see it is the resale market is the true t- determining factor of what actual true market value is of a unit. Um, that's why I laugh when, you know, you, you sell a, a, a broker sells a, a unit on platinum day one sales. And then the prices go up 50 K on the lingering units next week. And they post on Instagram and say, I just made my clients 50 K. It's like, yeah, sure you did. Try to assign it for that price today. You obviously can't because that's not what it's actually worth. Uh, you're just, like you said, you're just buying a futures contract on real estate. Um, and <clears throat> these projects downtown, like they're they're. If you talk to developers, like talk to Tridel, talk to Diamante, they're the margins are thinner than they've ever been. Um, you know, there are units that were sold at a Phase One project in Humber Bay. Uh, back in 2017 that are taking occupancy soon. I was talking to the developer about those units that were sold on the initial release are actually not in profit at all. The only reason they were able to building is because they held back so much inventory and sold them at a higher price. So developers in the 416, unless unless they've had the land for a long time, so their cost basis is low, like most of them are pricing at the absolute minimum they can afford to really price at, right? They're getting their, their 20% profit margin so that they can get their construction financing and, and that's it. There's slimmer margins than ever. But I think in the 905s, there's probably higher margins because, you know, I just imagine the it's it, development levies are a lot lower, it's cheaper to do business in areas like that. Um, you know, the, uh, it's a lot quicker to get approvals. Like, so I imagine there's more, there's more profit for the development. Land costs, I would say as well. Land costs too, yeah. too, right? Like, I think I, I wanted to get uh, Jeremiah or Ben on here just to, to talk about basically what, uh, you know, how we're seeing cost acceleration in, in those areas on, on land value, development land value per buildable square foot. Because um, apparently the patterns have been pretty interesting. But yeah, I mean, like you said, like you can, you can get a project. It's, if you have a shorter supply, uh, supply chain on on a project like this, like even just capital costs. I don't think when you talk about people uh, or, or developers um, using this to lever and and get construction financing, I don't think people understand the magnitude of a burn rate on on construct or on on land financing as we're waiting for for those approvals or for pre-sales to get, um, you know, t- so that they can get to construction financing. You know, these guys are acquiring sites for, for 50 to a hundred million dollars and they're not, they're not buying those with, you know, 80 to 90% leverage, like a, a single family home buyer, right? Like these guys, they're probably, they probably have 30 to 50 million in equity exposure. And then they have their, their debt behind that. And that debt typically, I mean, some of these bigger developers, they're working with, you know, with your, your, your big six, they have good reputations. They have, you know, pretty good spreads, I would say, and pretty fair interest rates. But when you got $50 million sitting for two years and you're paying interest on it, 
it's pretty easy to whittle away at the margins on capital costs alone, right? So they have to start recouping some of those 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 costs. Um, and and the, I'll admit, like some of the the development projects that I've underwritten, the the margins are razor thin, right? Like a lot of these guys are really just building to um, to keep the lights on and the machine moving. Uh, at least at the beginning of COVID, when things looked a little bit shaky, you know, they were they were really just just keeping those those massive machines running and keeping the projects going keeping people gainfully employed with you know without certainty that values were going to going to crank up like that obviously nobody could have could have foresaw what what happened since then i mean maybe maybe some of you guys did but uh, but yeah anyway interesting thought um no for for sure I, I don't think a lot of people realize it and i mean you see it when when people lose their minds because the development gets canceled and a lot of the time it's because the margin evaporated and they couldn't get their financing or whatever the case is um but what's interesting to me about the 905 versus 416 pre-construction is just how tight the gap has has gotten in in some cases like you know like barry pre-construction selling at a thousand a foot hamilton at a thousand a foot you've got you know georgetown at a thousand a foot you have brampton at 1100 you have square one at 1300 and meanwhile you can go pick up a unit at westerly on the islington subway station for 1050 1100 a foot like it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me um because i mean previously you would get Pre-COVID, you would get just an insane discount for buying some of these up-and-coming areas like Hamilton or Barrie, whereas now, I mean, you're you're barely getting a discount over Etobicoke, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Right, right. And how much of that do you do you see as being, you know, just like people capitalizing on um, on the the current trends and trying maybe rushing releases to try and squeeze them out or is it is it just a really a reflection of cost push inflation you know developers are saying shit it's going to cost me you know twice as much or you know or, or let's say 25 to 50 percent more than i anticipated building uh my my cost per buildable square foot and now i'm, I'm just going to capitalize that cost and pass it on to the consumer right i got to crank prices up a little bit um, uh, for sure. I, like, I don't know from a developer's perspective. Um, like you said, like if Ben or, or Jeremiah is on the call, they would know way better than me. Um, but what I can tell you is at a thousand a foot in Hamilton or Barry, like the demand is there. Well, I mean, a lot of the times, like I'll, when I have client consults or my team does, like I'll, I'll tell them like, look, man, you know, I can get you a similar sized unit for barely more money in Etobicoke on the subway or whatever. And a lot of the time the buyers don't care. They want to buy the Barry pre-construction or the Hamilton because because that's the market that's hot. That's the market that's on fire. Now, I will say, like, consumers have gotten, in in nine years of doing this, like, consumers have gotten way smarter than than they used to be. And I love to see it. Like, these days I have clients sending me screenshots of architectural plans that they pulled off the Toronto Development, you know, database, which is just awesome to see that people are getting that clever. The information Uh, age. 100%. 100%. Yeah, it's really nice to see that. Um, but uh, but I still have, like, these days, you know, like, one in five client consults come to me, one in six maybe, and, and they're coming to me, to me for pre-construction with the sole intention of assigning it before closing because their uncle made 100K doing that or whatever the case is. It's like, well, their uncle bought in 2015 on a unit that took occupancy in 2020, and, you know, 2016, 2017, best year ever for, for condo growth. So, of course, they did well. Um, but now you're buying a 15, 20, 30% premium over resale. And, uh, you know, unless it's your first assignment, I mean, the tax obligations are huge. Uh, your profit very quickly becomes nothing or negative. Um, 
and it's just it's interesting to me how many people and, and there's other to be fair there are a lot of brokers selling the dream of assignments you, know, you can buy this con you can buy a condo never close on it make 100 200k but i think like that is one of the issues with the pre-construction industry as a whole is just the lack of transparency um but i mean i could speak about that all day right fair enough um two two elements that i wanted to chat a little bit about uh, more more qualitative one is are we seeing um, the this this concept of you know the the reurbanization of demand? Like, does that play a role with with the preference of, of buying maybe precon rather than um, than a resale right now? You know, with a, a kind of big uncertainty of what the future of the central business district looks like, whether or not Toronto will ever be the same. Um, how much of that are you actually seeing show up in the discussions uh, that you're having with with prospective purchasers? Some of it. So, I mean, that's that's some of the rationale behind buying Hamilton at a thousand a foot instead of Etobicoke at ten fifty. Is uh, some people just don't have the confidence that you know um, that that these gaps are going to narrow and things are going to normalize and Toronto is going to be the king once again. Um, but I like, yeah, I think that's I think that's definitely part of it. Um, but I'm uh, I'm not sure that's it in in, in entirety. I think. A, Another big thing that a lot of people focus on, especially first-time investors, is they focus on gross price over over anything else. And so, you know, per square foot, be damned. They just want the cheapest possible unit they can get. And so, if you're saving a hundred bucks a square foot buying in Hamilton, like the gross price is is quite the difference from something in Toronto. Um, and so, I think that's part of it as well. Is just a lot of people focus on gross price instead instead of just objective value versus resale. Um, I think that's part of it. Okay, um, and then uh, Nazma, I see you uh, you unmuted there. The other element that I want, and any any of you guys can can feel free to chime in here, but the 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 gap between uh, and Scott, I did try and invite you as a speaker because I think this is your data that that might uh, that might come into play here. But the gap between a detached home and and a condo is is you know historically one of the biggest uh, at one of the biggest points it's ever been um how much is that element playing in and how much of, of that is people relying on okay yeah i mean condominiums are now becoming the price floor product in the gta right like if you want to get on the housing ladder we're we're so late cycle we're so much like you know some of these these late cycle european cities where if you want to if you want to own a product you're you're pretty much reserved to an apartment unit um you know new york city being another good example right um, it, you know, if you're a first time home buyer, if you're a Gen Z, who's going to be purchasing in the next decade. Um, so does that gap come into play? How, and when you're talking about the information advantage that people are trying to give each other or get, sorry, give themselves as a result of, you know, the, the information age, are they quoting things like that gap that you posted Jordan or that, that I've seen Scott post? Are you guys seeing stuff like that? And are those uh, considerations important? A hundred percent. I have, um, like uh, my sample is obviously a little tainted because if you sign up on my website for pre-construction, you're getting assaulted nonstop with my videos where I talk about the detached condo gap. So it's like by nature of even just being on my newsletter, you're going to hear about that a lot. Um, but definitely it's something I see a lot of people like, like a lot of investors comment on. Um, and just like it, it, what's interesting about last year to me is just how many more end users we had as, as just a percentage of our business base. Like we had more end users last year 
relative to investors than than I think we've ever had before, which was an interesting shift. Um, yeah, Nasma and I said the same same thing happening, and I, always, I I'm trying to figure out if that's just a selection bias because that that's the kind of realtor that we are. I, I'm not sure. It is interesting though. Sorry, I'll let you continue. Well, like I, so I mean, I'm not that kind of realtor, right? Like I'm most people who buy pre-construction historically in Toronto are are for the most part are investors, especially you know in the last five years as the gap has widened. And I like last year was a notable uptick in 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 end users or or just end user intent. So I mean, I like you could kind of classify someone buying for their kids as they're an investor temporarily, but also the kind of end users. Um, I had a we had a pretty big chunk of first time buyers, interestingly. Um, but those were first time buyers with the help of the bank of mom and dad, of course, right? Because you're buying pre construction at twenty percent. Like if a pre if a first time home buyer reaches out to me, the first thing I say is like, "Have you considered resale? Have you considered you know five percent down CMHC? Like wh- like why are we even looking at pre construction? A lot of times it's just because well, my parents, you know, I'm not ready to move out. My parents are gonna are gonna give me the the down pay the twenty percent down on a pre construction. Uh, it just lines up well, and that that's been a huge chunk of our buyers as well. Very interesting. Um, it looks like we got a couple questions here. I didn't really see the order, but I'll start with Tahir, and then we'll go to Soheb and, and Peter. Um, yeah, I, I just find that really interesting, the gap. I, I mean, there's almost a, a million dollar, I think Peter just posted. So yeah, there's almost like a million dollar gap between the, the condo or the uh, and, and the detached. And like, I was actually looking at some data also for Toronto, and it looks like there's like almost a 32 or 35% premium for buying a, a detached home compared to the national national average. Yeah, the, the disparity in pricing is, is it, it even makes me extremely bullish on as long as Canada and, and Ontario can get their shit together on, on reopening the city in a safe and proper way. Um, uh, you know, I think Toronto's set to rip unless we see a major correction in, in the suburbs, which seems like the Bank of Canada is committed wholeheartedly to, to, to making sure it doesn't happen. Um, you know, to me, the reurbanization of demand and, and, and that being pushed by condos being back on the price floor right condos being the only entry-level product remaining in the gta uh to me that 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 tells the story um so hey did you want to go ahead with your question yeah i've gotten a chance to attend a couple of these to get a general idea of things that uh, you know things are looking like down there i spent majority of my time in the oil market so there might be some naive questions in coming here but uh if the immigration is incredibly high uh, and more, you get more people coming in than houses that you could produce in a year. You don't get to a point where you've exhausted the supply and, you know, there's people living under bridges. And I'm talking about, like, just, I'm not talking about people that have chosen, you know, that, that that's going to be their lifestyle. I'm talking about people that come to the country and you get to a point where, okay, well, there's no houses currently available because we're accepting more people than we could build uh, I just wanted the thoughts on that because, um, you know, it just seems that that's how things would move if you get more people typically than, than houses you could build. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I can answer that anecdotally pretty quickly. Um, and using a case study that's actually an interesting one when, you, when you're when you evaluating um, the markup on pre-construction. So in 2016, late 2016, early 2017, there was a subdivision in uh, Holland Landing, Ontario, so about, uh, I, don't know, I want to say, 45 minutes north, maybe an hour north of, of Toronto, um, just outside of Newmarket. It was called uh, Hillsborough, and it pre-sold about 
three weeks prior to the non-resident speculation tax being put in. Um, and the values were probably 20 to 30% higher than, than, than market at that point. That was when we started pricing it in, especially on the detached side. Um, now th- that entire subdivision became, uh, a lot, a lot of rooming houses and a lot of rentals. But the reason I use that example is because it, it, the, the way that houses were built there, and I tweet about this a lot, but like we're seeing uh, detached homes, pre-construction design on, especially on detached, and you're even starting to see it on back-to-backs. You're starting to see it on on towns. The size and the the, the scale of bedrooms, um, the way that electrical is configured um, to so that you can have uh, in in many cases double circuits going to to bedrooms. Uh, bedroom every bedroom often has an ensuite there these a lot of these homes are designed to be multifamily homes if not rooming houses and it's something that's actually dismissed i think but because but this is really i would say the builders recognizing what's happening in the market and not even really pointing it out to the powers that be or explaining to them why they're designing these things in that way but just solving the problem of affordable housing in, in the detached space on their own. Um, and, and it seems to, to, to be pretty common. So that would be one of the ways that I see it. The other, and, and I'm sure Jordan or Peter can expand on this, but is, is density. You know, a lot of the people who are immigrating to Canada come from places that are far more dense than Toronto. And to them, you know, a, a, a 600 square foot condo that they're, they're getting downtown is, is a dream. That could be twice as much space as they're, as they're used to having. Right. Um, and so I think that, that there's, going to be a gradual um reconc- i don't know i don't know the word but yeah maybe like there that the, the quality of life or the difference in in the way that we use space um by comparison to the traditional canadian household versus the immigrant household is going to kind of reconcile or, or, or meet in the middle somewhere um which hopefully means more minimalism from 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 canadian people honestly because i'd say we're pretty pretty wasteful generally peter, yeah, maybe jordan oh go ahead peter sorry yeah, I was just going to add to uh, what Daniel said. So in terms of uh, some anecdotal stuff, so I know here, like in, in Markham, the, they are building with, they have garages in the backs attached to the home, but the garage are in the back and they're building them, like you said, multi-generational, multi-family where there's a second living quarter and essentially the kitchen is in the middle of the house, but the back of the house they're building where the garage is, they're building two bedrooms and a bath up there uh, to sort of fill by generational multi-family use. Um and, uh, you know, so it, with, there is a connect between uh, immigration, what, what they allow in, and, and municipalities and, and provinces in terms of what they're building. Like, they're, they're not on track. They're, they're not on the same page, definitely. But I think what is what comes in, we'll see a spillover of people leaving. And we talked about that last week. Um, it'll, it'll start with a trickle, but eventually, you know, it'll become a flood. You come here for a couple years. And uh, and if it's not working out for you, you'll just end up leaving. You may go somewhere else within the province, or you may just go back home from where you came from. Um, and again, back to the last thing Dan mentioned in terms about the differences, I can tell you for sure, again, anecdotally, but I've helped some clients from Hong Kong, and you know, I show them a single car detached that I would consider small for me and my family, and they look at it as if it's a mansion. So you know, it's a couple of different things to look at from different perspectives. Yeah, I was just actually going to say that, Peter. I had a client recently from Hong Kong, Canadian citizen, but been living in Hong Kong, um, purchased a sub 500 square foot one bedroom and refer to it as big for a one bedroom, which was interesting because usually when I show Canadian clients, 
you know, 475 square foot, one bedrooms. They talk about it like it's a prison cell. Correct. Right. To hear you were going to say something there before. Sorry. Um, yeah. Why? Uh, I guess this might be a little bit of a naive question, but is Toronto just terrible at using density? Because, I mean, yeah, there's a little bit of a discrepancy in density between, like, Toronto and Atlanta, for example. But if you look at housing prices in Atlanta, which about two hours from me, and I talked with you about this before, Daniel, like, I live in a 4,600-square-foot house that I got for, yeah. you know, on a, on, on a country club that I got for, like, you know, less than half a million dollars. So, like, you know, and it's very similar in Atlanta. In, in Atlanta, in terms of population density, is very similar to Toronto. I mean, there's a little bit of discrepancy. Toronto's a little bit more dense, uh, like, populate, um, dense, sorry. Um, but in terms of price discrepancy, it's massive. Yeah, so I think the entire supply chain is congested, right? So approvals are slow. There's so many bottlenecks. So approvals are slow. Labor is too tight. Like, I think we're building at capacity right now. And that's why uh, construction costs are inflating. Um, you know, and, and beyond that, like, so it's, it's not that we're, we're misusing density, but I think we're misusing sprawl. Right. And, and that's where the, you're really seeing the green belt. Right. So, you know, you can get a, a brownfield or a white belt site in, in Toronto and, and, take it through the planning process and you're probably not going to end up at the OMB, but it's just going to take you way too much time. So the OMB is basically a tribunal where if a municipality rejects a, a project, the developer can appeal it with uh, the Ontario, I guess it's now called LPAT, um, but, or I don't, I don't even know if they changed it back. The whole thing's so confusing, but anyway, I mean, that's actually an, that, that just that headache that I just went through is, is an indication of how, how bad things have gotten on the planning side. Um, it just, it's just on um, on the planning part, it takes way too long to get projects pushed through in the city of Toronto. Um, and then in suburban areas, I mean, there's just not enough land and, and the land has to be assembled because, you know, a lot of it is old major arterial roads. Like I'm from a, a small town called Keswick, Ontario. It's an hour north of Toronto. Um, any developments, there, there are many sites where you can build six to eight stories in this town. Um, but in order to, to do that based on the secondary plan, which is like a provincially mandated plan, where they explained it to, to uh, suburbs how to use their existing land inventory to develop uh, housing and, and, and meet their Places to Grow Act, their provincially manda- mandated growth targets. Um, in order to meet those goals, you'd have to have a minimum of two sites. So you have to pick off two residential owners. And now all of a sudden, if you're going to buy, go buy two you know, raised bungalow duplexes on uh, a small 40,000 cars per, per day uh, traffic road, um, you're competing again with the marginal buyer. So now all of a sudden you're paying a million bucks for that. And now, and so you're, this is where the marginal buyer is actually able to impact the per square foot, per buildable square foot cost, the land cost of what a developer would be paying. I, have, I don't have a single developer who's bought a, a site in a small town uh, in the past year, honestly, because they're just getting outbid by the marginal buyer. If I put together an assembly of three to four sites, if I come up with an acre, which is a relatively meaningful site for a small cap infill developer to put together in uh, in the GTA, they're they're not willing to pay what it is um, that that the marginal buyer would pay for those five separate houses, as an example. Um, so that's just a little bit of an education there. Um, yeah, and I've always been, as you know, in favor of abolishing the green belt. But every time I say that, I get beautiful messages from the green people in my DMs. So I try to stay away from that conversation. Right. Yeah, and I mean, it is—it's such a delicate balance. But the—you the, know—the—the—the the, the challenges that our 
municipalities aren't delivering the necessary utilities infrastructure to the places outside of the green belt, right? Like I, I don't, I think it's highly necessary to protect the natural heritage of, of, of Canada and of, of Ontario. But the difficulty is that it comes at a cost and that cost is it's basically like, do you want the tree to, to have good well-being or do you want the human being to have good well-being? And that's really honestly the, the point where it's not going to be conversations of capitalists versus communists or whatever it is who are going at each other's throats here um, on, on how we're going to solve this housing problem. It's going to be you know, it's going to be the people who are really trying to solve homelessness versus the people who are really trying to solve environmentalism because it's been pushed so far that those are the two extremes of, of the conversation in, in many cases in the GTA. So, have you still got your hand up or did you just forget that up there? No, uh, just to, for just a follow-up question to that. So, when, you, when, when I listen to some of the people that are a little bearish moving forward on, on uh, you know, the, the outcome over there, and then I jump in and I listen to what you guys have to say with boots on the ground, uh, the situation that's going, taking place at the moment. Like, in your thoughts, like, moving forward, how much more do you think the, 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 the average population could take before they say, you know what, this is just, this is, this isn't working out, especially for the immigrant that comes down and, you know, their, their income is not as great starting out if they're an Uber driver or whatever they're doing or they're doing skips just to, to meet and go by and you're paying $2,000 a month for a one-bedroom apartment. You know, where do you see the breaking point? Um, um, I mean, based on the conversation I'm hearing, it sounds like you guys anticipate the prices are going to go up even more. Yeah, so I I don't like to me it's and I, I would probably be you know one of the most bearish realtors uh, at least on Twitter, but um, and, and I, I would yeah yeah maybe eh? I I mean but I am I'm, I'm like bearish I'm just like a cynic I think maybe I don't know but um, you know I've capitulated on on that because I I really just think that the Bank of Canada is so committed to protecting homeowner equity. And I don't know why. I don't know what their ulterior motive is. I don't know. I don't know if it's because there's a failing pension system and they want boomers to be flushed with cash. I don't, and, and I speculate as much as I possibly can about why they would do that. So my, you know, my cynicism has almost gone more to analyzing why the hell this hasn't been solved yet. Um, and at, no matter what, it leads me to believe that, you know, unless we completely ruin Toronto, which they're trying pretty damn hard to do. I'm not going to lie to you with policy lately. Um, and it doesn't fulfill its its future role as a world city like New York, you know, like, um, then and, and immigrants don't want to live here and don't want to pay the, the, you know, the, the same wage to to price uh, ratio that you would see in a Hong Kong or New York City. Um, then, then yeah, if, if those things aren't fulfilled, if that destiny for Toronto isn't fulfilled, then yeah, we're kind of screwed here. Um, but I, I don't, and I, and that, that's where it comes, becomes a, it's like, you know, this is one of the first times ever where real estate has become a stock picker's market. It's like, if you had not known at the beginning of COVID, if you were to guess that everybody was going to migrate to Florida, you would have made a, a ton of dough, right? I think that, that the GTA has that opportunity right now because there are going to be some serious serious micro turbulences and where they go i have no idea but i think condos will probably come out on top i, I really feel like that they're poised to do well um trevor you got your hand up um and i know you've been trying so let's see if we can get this thing technical going. difficulties um Perfect. yeah no I, I i totally buy the potential for the hong kong london new york argument you know i'm living in here i don't i don't have to be here but i just love the city i love the country so my my question is kind of the opposite is there any you know 
what's the bear case with here? Like, what are you seeing as the biggest risk to prices going up? Because everybody I know is just making money hand over fist, tax free, you know, capital gains. And like, it seems like endless supply of free wealth for everybody. But we know that can't be the case. Is, is there anything in particular that you think could kind of disrupt us? Other yeah, than like I, I, a long term, you know, degradation of the city, which you just mentioned. Right. Yeah, I would say um, the the tax man coming is is probably the biggest risk that we that we have ahead of us from my perspective. I mean, you're already hearing so much um, thought process around how how we're gonna gonna go after the gains that have been made, right? Um, you know, CMHC exploring a national. Uh, uh, I guess it would be a national property tax, so an annual tax on you know basically a wealth tax, anything over a million bucks. Um, I, I I still think this whole thing ends with a an annual or sorry a, a national land transfer tax, um, but they're going to monetize the the gains in some way. The government and and I don't know what that looks like at a national level, but but when we saw the government trying to monetize the gains in 2017 in Ontario, and I would say Kathleen Wynne's government administration was as close to Trudeau's as we've seen, right? That like that you have, a, a, if there's a comparable, um, and they went and they, they imposed a 15% non-resident speculation tax in, in 2017 and the market, the market blew off about, about that exact 15% almost instantly. Then peaks a trough from that, let's say April of that year to, I think it was August of that year. Um, it, it dropped about 40%, 30 to 40% in some of the highest areas, new market, Aurora, et cetera. So uh, that to me, I think policy is, is it, you know, if they insult foreign owners, uh, or, 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 or not insult, but dissuade them, if they take away their buying power, if they make them feel like they're not going to, or that, that their investment is no longer safe from the government intervening. Um, if they try and go, you know, start cranking up capital gains. I mean, there's there's a lot of things that, from my perspective, could trigger a sell-off uh, that that would have a, a pretty pretty swift correction. So that's my answer, Peter. I know uh, I know you got your hand up there. Sorry, Jordan, if you want to jump in too. I was just going to say, worth kind of noting that the sell-off in detached. Um, well, I mean, they bit buying power, so people moved to the next step on the property ladder, which was condos, right? And kind of worth noting at that time, we were right back where we are today with a million dollar difference between detached and condo. So kind of funny how we're back there again today. I mean, you know, the catalyst to, to that correction where, you know, condos have been lagging detached for a few years, detached were really running. Um, they corrected because of, because of that. And then now, you know, detached runs because of the catalyst of COVID and people leaving the city. And now we're right back at that million dollar difference between detached, your average detached and your average condo. Yeah, absolutely. Peter, go ahead. Uh, yeah, well, in terms of the bear case for it, because, you know, I like you, I'm more pessimistic than anything. But uh, I, I think that the taxation, like even the one that they've proposed, I don't think will make a dent in, in, in its, you know, principal, principal residence, uh, you know, um, taxing, taxing on your gains there. That would definitely do it. But I think it's maybe the Bank of Canada getting... Um, uh, overzealous with uh, the idea of uh, of inflation and trying to tame it, and then you know aggressive rate hikes. But really, I'm with you where I don't believe that the government, the Bank of Canada, want to want to touch the equity of boomers. That's my thought process. Um, and I think the the one thing that may do it is, is some kind of contagion contagion that they can't basically contain outside of the country. That's my thought. 
Right. So Evergrande or anything like that. Um, Tahir, do you want to jump in on that? Because I know you got a good good macro view, and uh, and then we'll have Sohabe follow there. Yeah, but for full like transparency, like the reason <clears throat> I'm so into this is like uh, we're short Canadian banks. So <laughs> just for full transparency, just in case anybody's like, well, why are you guys always talking about Canada? Well, that's why. Um, but. Um, <clears throat> But I used to work for BMO, for full disclosure, also for nobody who knows that. But anyways, um, yeah, so, I mean, for me, I see probably the biggest risk is um, stagnation in real GDP per capita, um, which you started to see in Canada. Um, Really, there's been no real GDP growth, um, if you compare that to the United States. Um, So I think to more or less of an extent, houses can only go up so much to people's ability to afford them, unless like who... Abe, who I've talked with to much extent when I was in Toronto last, um, you know, unless Canada does like a fractional ownership thing where people start buying fractional ownership of houses, um, I mean, which would be ridiculous, but, you know, let's not take it off the table just depending on the way that things go. Um, But yeah, I mean, I see a lot of of risk, especially on the rates rising side. I mean, we can get into people, oh, well, people are stress tested 5.25%, then you can get really break down whether or not stress tests are actually... um, I mean, there's a lot of issues with stress tests, but I mean, for me, I see the biggest, biggest threat to Canadians as, uh, is rising rates. Um, and then I think that with the amount of leverage within the households, I mean, um, for example, mortgage debt right now to household disposable incomes, 120%, um, it's much different than the U.S., which delevered again after 08 Canada didn't. They continued to lever up, lever up, lever up. Um, and that can only go so far. Um, and I think, like I said, stagnant um, wage or stagnant real GDP per capita is, is probably the biggest headwind. Um, that and productivity. I mean, Canada's seen massive brain, dra- uh, brain drain. 30% of STEM majors after they graduate from Canadian universities go to the United States. Um, so, I mean, that's also a headwind. Um because, I mean, Toronto is really the only industrialized, um, I would say, like, or one of the most industrialized cities. I mean, like, you can't compare Toronto to, to Vancouver or even Montreal. I mean, Montreal's aerospace, but if you don't speak French, I mean, that's off the list, right? So um, I see brain drain also as something that's really going to impact Canada um, in, in the coming months. You think that there, that that would happen that quickly, like the a uh, uh, phenomenon like brain drain? Like I, I could see that you know the economics of, of migrating to Canada is becoming more and more challenging, and you're going to start to see people maybe turn away, but maybe turn away from Toronto or maybe turn away from Vancouver, or or go to the states. But like that, that's a from my perspective a long process, right? I mean, like I like when I read the stat. Uh, from I, I forgot who it was Canadian like government agency, but when I read the stat for last year that thirty percent of STEM majors leave Canada for the U.S., that's thirty percent of all graduates, engineers, etc., going to the U.S. Right? I mean, that's a massive amount of of talent leaving. Yeah, um, and and that was as of last year. Um, I think it was a. Like maybe it might have been like Calgary, uh, the government of Calgary who posted that stat, but it was for all of Canada. So, I mean, I, yeah, so that's what I'm saying. I mean, I think it's already being like um, massively um, like, let's say, accelerated um, as the price of living gets more expensive. Right. Because like, why would you want to live in Toronto when you could go to Houston and get, you know, a 5000 square foot house for 500 grand and make up hundred and thirty thousand dollars look like, you know, fresh out of college working for Lockheed Martin. You know what I mean? Um, completely right. different. Yeah. So, 
yeah, I think that that's definitely a headwind. No, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, so, hey, you still got your hand up here. Uh, another question? Yeah, just to, to, to touch base on that, especially if, uh, you know, as, as right now, as a lot of people have retired, uh, the, the immigration seems like it's getting a little more laxed. Uh, you know, I, I in the accounting space, you know, a lot of the, the guys are getting sent over to the U.S. just because, you know, they've got a huge, so I can imagine, you know, that, you know, carries over to other places as well. But uh, back to the initial question, which is, if you've got a significantly more amount of people coming in um, relative to the speed that you could build out new houses, don't you eventually get to a point where you just you, you just have people on the street? Well, I, I guess, and that comes back to that that discussion of are we starting to see the, the 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 private sector solving that problem by creating households that you know don't in a planning context appear as multifamily households, but but do in a functional context appear as multifamily households. Um, you know, and I, I'm seeing more and more of that, right? I mean, you're seeing more and more walkout basements. You're seeing more and more duplexes. Uh, you know, I think you're starting to see what you would see in in Europe, right? People are, are minimizing their space. You're starting to see like a Moore's law of, of housing. Um, more people are, are moving into to more houses. Uh, you know, people from my generation are staying with mom and dad longer. Um, and I think the census data, honestly, from my perspective, is really going to make that clear. So I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think we've kind of already run out of houses. And I think we're going to keep, like you said, we're going to keep running out of houses. Like th- this isn't, it's an undeniable crisis, right? Like it, it's just, and, and there's really no way that supply can meaningfully solve this problem, right? I think you get to the point where the economics are so bad that something like Tahir is describing where people are like, they show up, they go to get a job in Toronto and they see that the market's somewhere between 50 and 80 grand for, for their profession. Uh, and then they go and try and buy a house and it's a million bucks. And now all of a sudden they're like, fuck this, I'm going to go somewhere else, right? And they get back on a plane and they go to the US or whatever, where their degree is maybe more valuable. And even though it's harder to immigrate to that place, it, they can survive or they can meet their savings targets or whatever. They're not just basically, you know, signing themselves up for indentured servitude to pay a mortgage for the rest of their life. Um, so, yeah, that's a big qualitative part of the question, too. And the other thing that I think is not just the, the, the quantity of people coming to Canada, but the the, the qualitative makeup of, of who they are, right? Because you're starting to see, and I think Ben Rabideau posted, it was a while ago, but CRS scores as an example, so which is like a scoring system that describes how um, immigrants are, are their, how their employment fits with what the, the economy needs, basically. Um, those scores are dropping. So we're actually immigrating more and more people who might not actually be required or might not have a good opportunity to to succeed in the, in the current economy and what it's demanding. So you're starting to create an imbalance in, in the labor pool. Um, to me, it's like we should be bringing in tons of skilled trades, right, to, to help solve this problem because you're otherwise you're never going to be able to deflate construction costs. Um, Peter, I'll, I'll let you go ahead. You had your hand up. Just, just, sorry, Peter, just if I can, just to follow up to that. Could it possibly be that the reason this is happening, it's not because there's a reason there's a mismatch is because they couldn't find any other because typically that's how it goes, right? You have a list of priorities. You try to get the best matches. And then if you cannot, you're like, ah, oh, well, you know, we need to protect the housing market. So just uh, can't get people just all right just get you know the closest whatever and then consistently the match is consistently getting wider and wider as we go right yeah i mean uh, it's you're you you could be absolutely right and maybe but that to me that says something if 
we're getting to the point where we can't command the immigrants that we want anymore. And if you like, if you create a labor imbalance as a result of that, that is what leads to the phenomenon that Tahir was, was speaking about where you have basically a bunch of people who want to live in Toronto, want to live in Vancouver, want to live in whatever Canadian city can't afford to, because the job that they have doesn't match what the economy is paying a lot of money for at that, that time. Right. If the economics of, of moving to Toronto don't work, people won't be able to do it. Right. That's where they live on the street. Once they're bankrupt. Go ahead, Peter. Yeah, no, just, just a little CR. I think their CRS scores are based on, uh, it's what is it? The express entry system. So like, uh, I, I'd, I'd want to hold off and see if that, if those scores are, because I remember Q1 and Q2, like just because of COVID, they were so low, like you could step over that limbo bar there. Uh, so uh, I'd want to hold off and see if it was a, if it was an example or if it was reasoning around COVID and shut down borders and they were just trying to jam as much people through to make right. the quotas. Because we know they just moved people to the ledger, too. They went from uh, non-permanent to permanent, and they just threw these people in, right? Like, one of my clients from the U.S. was non-permanent, and he just got his permanent residence, like, that quick. So I'd want to hold off and see how how those scores go moving forward. I mean, but there's a real discrepancy. I actually read a CTV uh, article that one, I think, one in six or one in seven refugees who comes to Canada ends up homeless. So just like, I mean, just think about that. Now, obviously, like, I yeah, think yes, 75% of people who immigrate to Toronto, um, are, I think immigration is 75% of new immigrants go to Toronto. And I don't think that people realize how expensive it is. And even if you took what Peter threw up earlier on, on the average detached, um, I, I think the household I was reading somewhere, like household annual income needed to be able to afford um, like the home at that, you know, 1.6 million or whatever that Peter uh, had up there in the chart somewhere um, was like almost like $230,000, right? And so, I mean, most Canadians are not making $230,000, especially in Toronto. What's the average income in in the GTA? Like 65? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, household income to, to, to price ratio, I think it's something like 10 to 1. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's not sustainable, right? But the question becomes like, so that, that either means that Toronto needs, its economy needs to shape up quickly to have, to provide those jobs. So either wage needs to change or house price needs to change, right? I, and I, I just don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I see either happening. Um, any, anything else? Uh, I, we are past eight and I appreciate everybody staying around. Um, if there's, I saw a couple of people requested. I, I kind of got to comb through that um, to see which of the requested speakers are legit who have questions there. Um, but um, and I'll, I'll send some messages. Um, but anything you guys want to add before we wrap up? There was a couple of uh, questions that people dropped in the Twitter thread that haven't been answered. If, if you want me to rip through them quickly. Yeah, if you could do that, it'd be amazing. <clears throat> Cool. So Amanda asked, I don't know if she's still listening, but asked uh, regarding assignment sales and pre-construction, how are they structured in terms of like deposits and profit? Um, The answer is they can be structured like a number of ways. They can be structured really any way that you come to an agreement with this seller of the assignment. So I've seen it a million ways. Um, You could pay the profit plus deposits up front. You could pay the deposits up front and finance the profits on the close if the seller is agreeable to that. 
you could pay, uh, I've, I've broken it down for people before. So we've taken the profits plus deposits, broken it down into four installments at specified dates between now and occupancy and had it paid out that way. It really just matters uh, how you come to an agreement with the, with the assignor. Um, in terms of, she also asked in terms of uh, tax obligations, how is it taxed? Is the assignee uh, liable for any HST? So no, basically as the assignor, um, if it's your first assignment, the CRA is unlikely to deem you as somebody who whose intent was to assign, in which case you're just going to pay capital gains on the profit. Now, if it's your second, third, fourth, whatever assignment, or you own a ton of property and the CRA audits the sale, then it's going likely to be deemed that your intent was always to assign, and this is where things get uh, ugly. You're going to be between the assignment price and the purchase price, so your profit. Um, and then you're also going to pay HST on profit and deposits that are remitted back to the uh, to the assigner. So you're going to pay HST on both. Now, if you're the assignee, um, you can still be liable for the twenty four thousand dollar HST rebate on final closing when you when you finally close on the unit. So a lot of people don't realize when you buy pre construction from the builder, the price you see on the price list is not actually the price. The price you see on the price list is the price minus twenty four thousand dollars because the builder is claiming the new residential HST rebate on your behalf. Um, now you get that twenty four thousand dollars back within six to eight weeks. I've seen it even as, as quickly as three weeks, provided you prove that you moved into it as your primary residence or you leased it out for a minimum uh, one year term. You get the twenty four thousand dollar HST rebate back. So hope that answers your question. Beautiful. Um, were there any other ones in that thread that we didn't get to? I think we kind of, uh, kind of caught most of it. Yeah, I think we got most of it. Okay. Um, I also wanted to hear before we wrap up. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you a question. So this is actually for the United States, but um, so like right now, contractors are building around 70% of all housing starts. So like most right, most people who are buying houses now are buying them from contractors. So a lot of these houses are, um, I would say pre pre construction. So kind of the way that has been working in the US is the builders will get the permits, they'll wait because after everything you know, that happened in 08, they'd become more conservative. So they get the permits, they wait for the house to be sold, and then they start. Are you kind of seeing the same, like, pre-construction trend in in Canada, or is it uh, a little bit different? Yeah, it would be that, but but at scale, right? So they would sell, you know, a, a tranche of houses to, to get to the... It, it depends, like, I, I'm much more familiar with, uh, you know, with, with detached, so where they can build... You know 10 or 50 houses at a time whereas you know if you're building a condo tower you kind of got to sell the whole thing right and so you got to sell a tranche to get to your next piece of construction financing so you maybe even do your servicing loan or you know start excavation or whatever right jordan looks like you you got something to say here yeah same same thing 75 percent of the building has to be sold uh to get construction financing usually is how it works so you'll find a lot of develop some developers will sell 100 percent of the building up i mean most of the units that, or most of the buildings that are launching are oversubscribed anyway so they can sell out the whole thing in a day if they wanted to but a lot of them hold back a significant chunk of inventory to release at higher prices later uh i guess part of it is hedging against inflation and another part is squeezing profit later um but yeah, they sell 75%. Um, and then they get, you know, th there's conditions like your 70, you know, a certain percentage of your, your pre-construction purchasers have to provide pre -con um, mortgage pre-approval letters from a schedule one bank uh, before you get your construction financing type of thing. Um, and that's, that's typically how it works. 
Yeah, I, I'd be curious uh, to hear to know, like, I, I'm assuming you're, you're speaking about detached uh, houses, because I know you, you use the word homes, whereas you'd probably have called them apartments in the U.S. Um, is that, that detached? Yeah, usually it's detached. Um, I mean, like, when you're looking at um, uh, the, um, like, the chart, yeah, it's, it's, it's all uh, detached housing, usually. Because, um, obviously, here, living minus, like, if you live in, like, New York, um, most people lived in, in detached homes just because, I mean, they're so cheap. Like I was saying, I mean, even I was sending photos to Peter um, of houses you can get here right now for, like, 400 grand. I mean, you're talking, you know, like, yeah. fifty. 500 square feet or, or, you know, or so. And, um, you can get mortgage rates for, you know, 1200 bucks on a 30 year fixed right now. So, um, you know, yeah, most people go to housing. Right? <laughs> yeah. You're going to make all the, uh, all the GTA people start crying here. It's talking yeah, like for that. my relocation ladies. Yeah, I'm exactly. single, you know, we can do yeah. a 90 day fiance deal. No, I'm yeah. Kidding. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're taking <laughs> applications now. Um, so, Hey, you got your hand up. So what's up? Uh, are you guys hearing any people relocating to Alberta? It's one of the only provinces that hasn't moved up as much. I mean, you've got Saskatchewan, but, you know, there's nothing going on over there. But yeah, yeah. I'm so bullish on Alberta right now. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. Especially in the pre-con space. Like, I, I've, I've actually um, done quite a few pre-con deals with a buddy of mine um, in Alberta. Uh, I can introduce you to him if you're interested. Um, but he, you know, he was buying wholesale pricing from developers he, he, a while ago. Uh, not not anymore because uh, they just they don't have the the scarcity of demand. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I think the fact that we didn't see the insane price growth in that part of the country, um, it, you know, it's primed to grow just based on that alone. Like similar to what what I was saying about condos earlier versus um, the detached market in the GTA. And then also, I think that you know Canada is a petrodollar, and and oil price. If oil prices stay where they are, that we're we're going to see a lot of, of ramping up of industry in that part, like jobs, wage growth. If you're going to see like domestic, you know, because a lot of people aren't going to brain drain per se out of Canada into the U.S. because it's not that easy to do, right? Especially like unless you have a really in demand um, skill set, right? But you know, unskilled labor. You know, you look at, think about when, you know, and I'm from, I'm from a small town where it's a lot of, a lot of unskilled labor um, or skilled labor, but trades, right? I would say like 50 plus percent of, of my buddies from my hometown were, were moving out at West during the, the boom, you know, living in Fort Mac and driving heavy equipment and going to the strip club every night and whatever, right? Like I could see that happening again pretty easily uh, in, in, in pursuit of the 100K plus a year, especially with the cost of living being so shit you know people are going to go where they have to to make ends meet i think yeah, the only the thing, i think the only thing we didn't really address was like the supply chain disruptions in the pre-con industry and how that's going to impact construction you know what i mean and yeah how that's keeping inflation elevated i don't know if somebody can it's a really good that. point that's yeah. a good point um i know i've spoken to a couple of developers one in particular who she's built a few thousand units in in uh, in toronto some noteworthy builds and she was saying that she uh she knows firsthand a number of developers who are hesitant and this was last year but applies now to hesitant to even launch their product just because pricing is so uncertain in terms of um supply chain and and what they're actually like their their pro formas have so much room for flex they're not really sure exactly what their profit's going to be so pricing is so difficult and there's just so much uncertainty with it that they've just decided to hold off launching entirely which of course constrains new housing starts and and is um well in a way it's bullish but yeah i mean that's uh firsthand from a developer anyways 
Well, I think it's going to be I think it's going to be a huge thing by like third or fourth quarter 2022 in my personal opinion. I mean, I, like I think as much as Daniel's bearish, like I'm 10 times more bearish, I think he I think Jordan knows how negative I am. But I don't know. I I just feel like um you know, like now they're stopping truckers that are unvaccinated at the borders and stuff like that, right? So I, this is obviously going to have an accumulative effect, right? It's like a rippling effect in the in the economy. So how this all plays out, I have no idea. But you know, I, I don't. Yeah, I yeah, think labor scarcity is just as tight too, right? Like the fact that you can't get labor, those costs accelerate quickly. Sorry, go ahead, Tier. To Susan's point, when I was talking about that regression that we were running earlier for every 1% increase in mortgage rates, there's a 4% decrease in housing starts. I think that that's obviously going to move um, a lot of that demand to to resales, obviously, over pre-construction. But, I mean, even if you look at the newest uh, the newest um, starts number, I mean, what starts fell by almost like 100,000 or so. Um, so, I mean, obviously, there's that supply chain side. But, obviously, I mean, demand is just so um high i don't really think that it's going to dwindle um the only way that i see that dwindling is obviously if macklem actually raises rates or if canada has to follow the fed um then yeah i could i could see um see like maybe uh pre-construction getting hit on that on that uh side and i think resales then would do better right yeah i mean or like you know and, and i think when covid first happened it was interesting right because the construction delays that were happening, like like job sites were getting shut down, right? Like for, for months at a time. I think for the first lockdown, it was a month. It was like 38 days or something before they got, so the halts in construction. But at that point, like everybody was pulling out force majeures, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so they, and they would, they would get uh, leniency from their lenders or whatever it was. So th- there was like, everyone was trying to collaborate to see how the hell we were going to make this thing work. And um, it, it appeared before, you know, the, the decision to go basically the zero interest rate policy was made, um, you know, it occurred to a lot of purchasers that maybe actually a delay in construction would be an advantage here because it would give the market time to, uh, to catch up if, because things weren't looking super optimistic then, um, you know, I think we have similar problems ahead of us, but the reality is that, you know, the, the margins have been, been built in and, and with, with some of the holdbacks on units, I think that developers can, can try and scrape by once they've started construction, like people aren't canceling projects when they're, when they're halfway up in the air, right? It's not, it's not the developer who's exposed at that point anymore. It's, it's a big six bank and probably a huge capital stack that has, you know, pension funds in it and non-bank financial institutions in it and it's bonded. And, you know, so at that point, like it's not, the, the, my fear isn't isn't on the material side. I think that you know you're just going to see less projects coming to market, and and if anything, that's just going to crank price up, right? I don't think that's a bearish signal. Like you're just going to see people say, "Oh yeah, I'm not probably going to hold off on that next project until the window, you know, the glazing or curtain wall shortage uh, subsides, right? And then maybe we'll bring that to market in a month or sorry, in a, in a year, and we'll just pay the capital cost in the meantime. Well, that's you know, X hundred units that was just taken out of the, the supply pipeline. And so now all of a sudden your excess demand goes up by excess or X hundred units. Right. Um, so to me, like a supply scarcity is, is just going to drive um, prices up unless we completely collapse the Canadian economy. I think uh, like to hear said um, interest rates are really what's, what's going to, you know, poke a hole in this thing that or, or, or destructive policy on, on the government's part. I can see a lot of developers like relaunching though, like canceling and relaunching. I've seen that. I've even seen it with large developers like Monarch. 
what like is a perfect example would have been like the Nautilus before Nautilus. It was called the breeze along the uh, waterfront there. And what they did is they canceled that project. Like they'd sold, you know, 70, 75% of the project they canceled, relaunched. And, you know, they gave, uh, they gave, um, purchasers like all these options and like, you know, first dibs into the building, but you know, it was relaunched at much more higher price points. Right. right? But that's still, that's still in like, from my perspective, that's still pre-construction, uh, problem, right? Like, I don't, I'm just wondering like if supply chain issues are actually going to hit during the construction process. I don't know, honestly, but I, I certainly, I certainly hope not. But that was also, that was before Monarch was bought by Mattamy, correct? Like that was, that was right before, I think Monarch was bought I by Mattamy. I don't remember. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know if I'd call him that big of a developer at that time, because I, I know they were bought for like three, I want to say 250, 300 million, something like that. But anyways, yeah, side, side note. But I mean, if I was to put my capital anywhere right now in Canada, I think back to Daniel's point, it would be Calgary. I had a buddy who's working for BMO, actually moved out west, and he was saying, I mean, if I invested like seven figures out there, I mean, you could buy up like some crazy cash flows in some of those properties. So. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I, I completely agree. I think Calgary's got a lot of opportunity. Rents are going to inflate. Like, um, yeah, I, I think it's a good market. Um, the other example, I, just, I think, on the mm. on that side is would be Crestford, right? Like, they bailed on a handful of projects that got taken over by other developers. Sorry, go ahead, Nazma. No, it's okay. I just wanted to ask Jordan a question. So, you know, let's say someone's buying a one-bedroom for 700000 okay? And you're telling them, and let's just say it's like 500 square feet. And you're telling them that, you know, that's fine because, you know, prices are going to catch up to this in 2025 and they're buying it for their kid, whatever they're buying it for, or an investment. What if prices don't catch up with what they're paying? So why can't they just wait till 2025 to buy? At least then they know what the rate is. We have no idea what the interest rate is going to be at that point. It's for just sure, such but- a big gamble. Well, it's not that big of a gamble. So if you're buying pre-construction 10% more expensive than resale, you, your gamble is 10%. It's more than 10%. But it's not always, right? So mm-hmm. with, with Cielo, Downtown. sure, it's 20%. With Pemberton, yeah. sure, it's 25%. With Sky Tower, it's cheaper than Harbor Plaza across the street. So it's not always. And I think, like, I, I get your point because I agree 100%. And the first thing I do in client consoles is I always tell people how much more they're paying than resale. A lot of people don't care, couldn't give a shit. A lot of the time I'll show them a better price at a project that launched a year ago. Yeah, but Jordan, that's not platinum. That's not day one. Yeah, but Jordan, that's 50K more than the day one purchasers paid. So at the end of the day, like you can guide your clients as, as, as you know, I mean, you know this better than anybody. You can coach people as much as you can yeah. and give them as much valuable info as you can. But at the end of the day, um, some people just want the Pemberton and I'm going to sell it to them. And, you know, they're probably like... There was a project I got blacklisted from in, in 20, I think it launched 2019, because I put out a, a YouTube video where I said openly it was 200 bucks a square foot more expensive than resale. And at this point, it was one of my first videos. So this developer didn't, they thought I was singling them out. They didn't know that, like, now I get away with it because I, I do videos on every project and I openly disclose how expensive it is versus resale. And so developers just know he's just that guy that does that. That's just part of his, his shtick. Like he, he mm-hmm. shows that, but I got blacklisted from this project for saying it was 200 bucks a foot more than, more than resale. And you know what? Um, anybody who bought that project is up like 200 bucks a foot today or about 150 bucks a foot today. So I've been wrong 
on that uh, by telling people not to buy there. Like I was, I was effectively wrong. Like the speculators won, right? Um, now, granted, I took a lot of clients to a project that had launched a year and a half before that project, and they got in for seven fifty a foot. So my clients still won. Uh, their ROI is going to look better in the end. Um, but on, on the on the notion of like, what if it doesn't catch up? Well, what if they buy resale and it corrects down twenty percent? That client's in the same boat as my client now. But um, no, because they wouldn't be buying now. They'll be buying in twenty twenty five. But what if they're buying in twenty twenty five and the one bedroom's now now a million? It won't then be I, Jordan. It just will not be. I said it will the same. I said the same thing when I saw Kip District <laughs> One launch at four hundred ninety foot. Maybe it'll be seven hundred. I'm just gonna remind you for that. When Kip District no. One launched at four hundred ninety bucks a foot, I said this is expensive, and now it's trading nine fifty. We the, you go back, the prices always mm. seem too high. You know what my problem is? Is my problem is people go to precon agents. This is what precon agents do. Not you. Let's just say not you, but other precon. They will have some website which looks like a legit developer website. They'll have Google Ads. It's always been like that. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the, the name of their game is just get as many leads as possible. Mm-hmm. And it's just transactional. They don't give a shit about this person's future. They're not invested in this person's future. And I so they just want to sell it. Shit. Can you hear me? I can hear you fine. Yeah. So they're not invested in this person's future. All they want is this specific deal. Yeah, you're in your platinum sign. Now you have like, you know, you have one hour, this unit's gone, it's an allocation, whatever. They just want that person to sign. And it's the same thing like, oh, on the well, resale I, side, though. Like, I, I, I think it's bad actors. Yeah, but then I, I, listen I, you can't this. make money assigning. Well, wait, wait, wait. So then they're like, oh, well, can I assign? The agent's like, yeah, free assignments. Or yeah, there's just like a 5K fee. He's not going to, I'm saying he, but like, whatever, whoever. They're not going to explain anything or the, the the realities of assigning. And by the way, I'm talking about condos, uh, maybe downtown, surrounding, and like urban areas. I'm not talking about pre-con and Barry and whatever. That's a whole other thing that I also don't believe in right now. But anyway, um, the point is they say, yeah, you can assign whatever. Then what happens is that a, that that person comes to me in a year, a year later. I didn't know that they bought. I didn't even know them a year ago. They come to me and they're like, oh, I want to assign this. And they give me some number, which is just some ridiculous number. And I, we can't assign it. They're, not only are, are they not making money, but they're losing money if they assign. And none of this information was explained to them by that so-called pre-con agent. Um, the thing, and I'm just going to switch to the pre-con in, in all these areas. I also am so risk averse from, you know, again, it's not my decision. It's whoever wants to buy, let them buy. But buying pre-con in the 905 and in all these random areas, okay, it's hot right now. But you're buying future value. We have no idea how long this is going to continue. And it yeah, might I mean, crash. My, my perspective, yeah, my perspective on that one especially is is that, you know, the I think the pre-con value inflation, the early inflated values that we're seeing um, in, in the 905, they depend on the, the detached market being as inflated as it is currently. I, and I don't know how well that's going to hold. Like, I think we're starting to see some massive anomalies in the sales, like just mind-blowing prices and uh and i I think that's got to correct like it'd be i'd be very surprised if the bank of canada isn't doing something this time next week which leads me to you know as we wrap up here um that's what we're going to talk about next week i'm just going to make jordan a speaker here again but yeah that i mean that's what we're going to talk about next week so i don't know if you guys want to put your bets on uh 
of what we think we're going to see happen on the 26th, the first uh, scheduled Bank of Canada announcement next week. Well, the rate's going to go up for sure. I mean, Daniel, over, under one basis point, I'll take the under. Yeah, me too. Uh, I don't know. If you look at forward Fed uh, swaps, uh, they're pricing in 51 BIP hikes. I'd see a a quarter, um, I think, think 25 BIP. I think Canada can only raise a quarter. I think the Fed will do 50 Yeah, that'll be a warning shot, right? Like, hey, guys, get your shit together. Don't make us come down there. But I, I think the interesting thing is where do you go from here because as inventories get drawn, drawn down, I think really the only place people will have to turn to is to pre-con. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. that end. and again, like getting creative with density, like as Sohaib was asking about, like are people going to end up on the streets? Yeah, well, I mean, we saw some creative density under the bridge in Fort York there for a while in the summer, um, but you know, you're also going to see it in the suburbs where people are piling into 4,000 square foot houses because – we don't need 4,000 square foot houses, right? Like, and I, I mean, people don't make their own density. You yeah, well, you, you do. That's an American And 16 guns. Yeah. I have 17 now, actually. Peter, I added another one over the weekend. Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I, I, it looks like I'm not able to add Jordan here. I no, I just, why, but, I'm uh, back in. It broke for whatever oh, are you? reason. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah I don't know, Twitter's all glitchy. They introduced NFTs and then it just like broke the internet. So, <laughs> I don't know. You know it's crap. Don't get me started on NFTs. Well, no, Twitter just like right when we were trying to get this thing started, it kept like trying to ask me if I wanted to make a uh, Twitter NFT and then it, I couldn't start the original thing. So I don't know. I kept crashing for both Jordan and I it was pretty funny. So, so hopefully did I, this recording works. Did I miss anything good? Did Nasma keep shit talking me or? <laughs> yeah, she was like specifically just like if you guys, if any of you guys want to want to do any business with Jordan, just call me and my team. Right, right, right. I don't. Okay. Yeah. No, but I, I mean, don't like that. I mean, I know we're ending here, but to your point, ask me. You're absolutely right. The, my biggest issue with our industry, pre-construction specifically, is how opaque it is. How so many brokers pretend they're the builder. So many brokers put together these pro formas that promise 12 percent compounding annual growth rate. And these crazy cash flow positive guarantees that they have no intent to actually honor. I mean, just like, look, just this week, I got three calls from clients who didn't buy with me, who bought at 357 King, who want to assign their units today. And the first question I always ask these people is, um, you know, where's your broker? Where's the guy who sold you the unit? Uh, he won't I pick up my the call. Same thing. You know, yeah. he won't pick up my call. <laughs> it's like, right. well, of course not, because he promised you'd be able to make 300K on assignment. And I now have to deliver the bad news that it's worth 50K more than you paid. And by the time you pay commissions, that 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 gain has evaporated. So, yeah, I agree with you. Like, there's problems in the pre-construction industry with with how some brokers... with how totally the same in the resale, though. Like, yeah, that's true. This is bad in resale. It's just that's an that's an Aurea problem. That's that's a barrier to entry problem in the real. Like, you got sixty thousand realtors in in the in the GTA. That's right? an ethical I'm, I'm problem. Trying. It's not yeah. an Aurea thing. You I th- I think it is honestly. I think that they're not selecting for people who are properly trained. Like, you know, anybody can pass the realtor exam. I I, I really feel like they could they could eliminate that by creating a greater barrier to entry. You guys but need even more if someone's bankers. smart enough to be an agent, that that doesn't mean they're ethical. Right, so I would agree. I think that, that, that I think that quick bug. I agree that the ethical problem exists, but I think that having a barrier to entry. I don't. I mean, you're you're probably right, but I, I think that the, the barrier to entry is is a a parallel issue for sure. And but but you are right. I don't mean you're probably right. I, you are. There's an ethical. I'm issue. just wondering when they're going to like you know recognize COVID nineteen as a force majeure event. 
really. Like, I mean, it's been two years, hasn't it? Like, I don't get it. On what? Well, last time I went to Toronto. Sorry, go ahead to you. Oh, sorry. I was just saying last time I went to Toronto, I remember when, like, which was, what, Peter, when was I in Toronto last, like, a month? No, two months ago? I don't know. Um, two, three months yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah. They, they held me at the border for, like, six hours. I was so pissed. I just had the same thing happen uh, going coming back in uh, from, from Palm Springs. I was two hours for a COVID test. I think Nazma had the same thing. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, I think we're good here, guys. Anything anybody wants to add before we wrap up? Um, and then we'll maybe just get a thread going, taking bets on this, uh, this interest rate announcement so we can get that one fired up for next week and see what the fallout's going to look like. So next week uh, is going to be on interest rate and housing because I built a yeah. model on how housing will be affected by interest rate hikes. Cool, so. very cool. Yeah, so because it, it's a day, um, it's the day after. Yeah, so because the, the rate announcement's on Wednesday, the twenty sixth next week, and our our uh, our weekly meetup is on Thursday night. So we'll we'll be discussing that. I think. All right, let's take some okay. pre bets, and then uh, we'll. Yeah, I think twenty five bips. I'll, I'll start a thread right now, just so it's all in writing. And maybe right, we can I'm going to get, some, gonna get aggressive money and on say it. nothing. <laughs> you know, it'll be hilarious if they don't raise it all. Yeah. That's my bet. That's my bet. Okay. Well, I'm Peter, gonna, I, bet you, I bet you a house in South Carolina. No, I'm joking. Oh, <laughs> no, bet my wife. Bet my wife. So she bet your wife. Ouch. God, got to get her on my side. We'd be shooting God. guns right now if I had my way in South Carolina. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks a lot, everybody. I really appreciate it. This is an awesome one. Uh, really insightful. And we will have a recording this time for anybody who wants to catch it. Have a good night. Thank you, Daniel. My Thanks, pleasure. Daniel. Bye. Bye.